invite you to turn in your Bible this morning to the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 18. Leviticus 18, while you're doing that, just want to encourage you again, as Wayne mentioned, there will be a presentation this morning for Adult Sunday School from Word and Deed Ministries. And we live in such a hurting world, uh, and God has given us the privilege to serve in the name of Jesus Christ, and we'd just like to encourage you to come and to hear what uh, the Lord is doing through Word and Deed Ministry and how we can participate and partner with that. This morning we uh, come to a chapter in Leviticus 8 that makes parents cringe um, as it deals with things we'd rather not talk about. But this is God's Word, and we can trust that God um, has these rules and statutes for, for all of us. And um, let's just lean into the Word of God this morning hear Him speak to us in Leviticus chapter 18. Just quickly point out, um, as we've been going through the book of Leviticus, the first 16 chapters really were taken up with the ceremonial aspects, sacrifices, and, and laws of, uh, relating to uh, cleanliness. And then in chapter 17, we had a transition um, as we begin the, the holiness code, as it's called. And chapter 18 really is, is um, then one of the very first things that God wants to address when it comes to the holiness of His people, and that is their sexual relationships. Let's begin 18 verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Then in verses 16 through 18, we'll have um, just laws related to the boundaries of marriage, whom you're allowed to marry and have sexual relations with. Uh, Specifically dealing with family here. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. Notice the two-one flesh principle there. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, or your mother's daughter, whether brought up in the family or in another home. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your son's daughter or of your daughter's daughter, for their nakedness is your own nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife's a daughter brought up in your father's family since she is your, is your sister. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister. She is your father's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister for she is your mother's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother. That is, you shall not approach his wife. She is your aunt. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and of her daughter, and you shall not take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are relatives. It is depravity. And you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. And then verses 19 through 23 are other deviant acts that God prohibits. You shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in her menstrual uncleanness. And you you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife, and so make yourself unclean with her. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. 
You shall not lie with any animal and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is perversion. Do not make yourself unclean by any of these things. For by all these, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all these abominations so that the land became unclean. Lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the, person who do, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you, and never to make yourself unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Let's ask the Lord's blessing. Our Father in heaven, Lord, this is a word we need to hear today in a culture that is um, rebelling against you so profoundly in terms of uh, sexuality. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd give us then ears to hear uh, your voice as you speak to us, your people, and you call us to follow your statutes and your rules, uh, that we might be a, a distinct people, holy unto the Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, brothers and sisters, as you know, it's a text that, that's profoundly relevant uh, today in the past 15 years particularly, uh, we've seen an unprecedented shift in our cultural perspective on sex. Uh, sociologists and historians marvel at the rapidity uh, with which the uh, complete wholesale change of perspective regarding normal uh, human sexual relationships. What once was universally condemned is now celebrated. Uh, fornication is glorified. Homosexuality is lauded. We have a month dedicated to celebrating it. Uh, polygamy is paraded on uh, TV shows and in People magazine. Uh, every sexual norm has been cast aside. Even the idea of gender uh, no longer applies. Unfortunately, um, as is the case throughout history, what happens in the culture impacts the church. And so more and more professing Christians are affirming the LGBTQ lifestyle and rejecting the biblical one. I'll just give you one example of uh, what's happening in the church. In uh, 2017, uh, the Center for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood published a, uh, a statement called the Nashville Statement. Uh, this was a, uh, just 14 simple affirmations of biblical truth related to sexuality. I'll just read a few of them so you get the sense of it. Uh, we affirm that God has designed marriage to be a covenantal, sexual, procreative, lifelong union of one man and one woman as husband and wife and is meant to signify the covenant love between Christ and His bride, the church. Here's another. We affirm that God's revealed will for all people is chastity outside of marriage and fidelity within marriage. Here's another. We affirm that sin distorts sexual desires by directing them away from the marriage covenant and towards sexual immorality, a distortion that includes both heterosexual and homosexual immorality. Now those are truths that were uh, the church just took as incontrovertible. Those, those were not up for debate for the last 2,000 years of the history of the church. 
But the statement was met with a hailstorm of criticism from professing Christians. Here's one example. An organization uh, published a counter-statement called God is Love. And this is what they had to say. We believe all people have full autonomy over their bodies, sexual orientations, and gender identities. And the diversity of identities reflects the creative power of a loving God. We believe, here's another, we believe that God is love. And they quote 1 John 4, 7, that whoever loves has been born of God. Therefore, we believe God is honored in any consenting and loving relationship between adults. And therefore, all such relationships deserve honor and recognition. Here's another. We believe that same-sex relationships and marriages are as holy before God as heterosexual marriages. That's just one example. You could list many more uh, of people responding vehemently against the Nashville statement. The biblical sexual ethic is increasingly implausible. Not just to the culture in which we live, but it's increasingly implausible to people who profess to be Christians. Uh, we see this particularly uh, in, in the, the realm of Christianity we call progressive Christianity, but it is increasingly uh, happening in the evangelical world as well. Uh, the, the teaching of the Bible concerning human sexuality doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem just. Well, God has a word for the church and for the world, and uh, we need to hear it. It's a good word. Uh, the chapter, maybe if you notice, we were going through is divided into main, four main paragraphs. First, you have the preamble, uh, introductory statement about who God is, who they are, the Israelites, and, and what God's general command is, don't do uh, like the nations around you. Uh, verses 6 through 18 then deal with uh, rules related to uh, incest, interfamily relationships. 19 through 23, rules related to other deviant behavior. And then 24 through 30, conclude with a warning. Let's just start where the text starts in the preamble. Uh, the first five verses are very important because they establish the foundation for everything that follows. The very first question when it comes to any morality and uh, also then to sexual morality is the question of authority. Who gets to make the rules? Who gets to decide what's right and what's wrong? Well, the, um, the statement God is love, right, says we believe that all people have full autonomy. In other words, we believe that people have the right to determine uh, what they do with their body. They have the right to determine their sexual orientation, their gender identity. And that's part of God's glorious diversity in creation. So people fundamentally have the right to determine that. Well, the, 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 the text says uh, that God says, I get the right to decide this. Right? I am the Lord your God. That's how, that's how the whole section begins, and that's how it ends. I am the Lord your God. And the idea there, that when, um, when you have the word the Lord, that's the covenant name for God, Yahweh. It's, it's the name that reminds Israel, this is the God who's covenanted himself, uh, entered into covenant with them. The God who uh, promised to be their Savior. The God who rescued them by his own mighty hand out of Egypt. The God who, who is, is providing for them miraculously in the wilderness. The God who's promised to bring them into a new land flowing with milk and honey. And so the Lord signifies a God of steadfast love and, and faithfulness and compassion and kindness. 
But he's also God. I am the Lord your God. With all that that tells us about God in his being, sovereign, infinite, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. God is the creator and the sustainer and the judge of all the world. That's who God is, and this is God's word. It's not like anything else in creation. God is not asking to be a part of the conversation. God, the living God, is is establishing what the rules are, how things actually work. And, and what Israel is to be defined by is, is, of course, the Word of God. So God says in verse 3, You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. Notice that God begins by establishing a very strong line of division between Israel and the rest of the world. A a distinction between God's people and Egypt, the place where they came, and the, and the, uh, the nations of Canaan, where they're going. You shall not do as they do in Egypt or they do in the land of Canaan. Don't, don't uh, adhere to their statutes. Lethem in his commentary says, the phrase, I am the Lord your God, is repeated six times. God's making a point. Israel's sexual morality is portrayed as something that marks it off from its neighbors, as the Lord's distinct special people. This chapter insists that certain standards of sexual morality are decisive marks of religious allegiance. And so to be faithful to the Lord God is to observe the statutes of the Lord God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. A statute is something that has authoritative weight. It is a given. It's not up for discussion. If you ask, um, what is the statute of the world when it comes to human sexuality? Well, we just read it. The statue of the world, the thing that is... it's. It's such a given you don't even have to debate it is that people have the right to decide how they want to express themselves sexually. That we are autonomous in, that, in, in every area of life, but specifically when it comes to our sexuality. The, the world's statue is that love is love and you are free to express your love any way and with whomever you choose. That's the world's statue. That's the given. It has authoritative weight. People would be um, astonished that you would, you would have the audacity to argue against that statue. It, it's, so, it's so presumed, so ingrained. Well, that's the world's statue. God says, you shall obey my statue. God's statue comes with all the weight and authority of God's being. These aren't suggestions. This is, this is God speaking with all the authority of His being and, and this statue is meant to be taken then with, with utmost weight and seriousness. A rule is something that has been inscribed, something that, that orders reality, sets boundaries. And so, um, Lethem says, a noun, the noun denotes something inscribed by God. An example would be a boundary line for the sea which it may not cross, Jeremiah 5, 22. 
And so you see, God means for his rules here to lay down the boundary lines for life in this world, which is his world. He's laying down the boundary lines regarding marriage and sexuality. And in keeping those uh, boundaries and and paying attention to those boundaries, there's life, there's blessing. Verse 5, if a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. God signs his name to it. You can count on this. If we live by God's statutes, if we, if we um, pay attention to God's rules, we will find life. We will find blessing. And if you ignore them, you'll find destruction. You'll find death. So that's the foundation. That's, that's how God begins the conversation. I am the Lord you are distinct. Here are my statutes and my rules. Verses 6 through 18, I'm not going to spend a lot of time. These rules lay out the boundaries of whom you may marry, whom you may have sexual relations with. And the common theme is that you cannot have sexual relations with close relatives, whether they are blood relation or relation by marriage. God calls such behavior depravity in verse 17. It's corrupt. It's, it's, it's rotted. It's an offense against God's statue. It's a violation of his rule. Uh, they may do that in Egypt. They, probably, they, they do it in Canaan. You're not to do it in Israel. I am the Lord your God. And it's not up for debate. The Lord lays it down and expects Israel to adhere. Verses 19 through 23, you have rules concerning other deviant behavior. And so uh, th- there seems to be a descending order of deviance um, in, in, in these verses. So in verse 19, you have a prohibition against sexual relations during a woman's menstruation. Verse 20, a, a rule concerning adultery. 21, a rule concerning offering your children to be sacrificed to Moloch. 22, a rule against homosexuality. 23, a rule against bestiality. <clears throat> if you look at those five... Um, And you ask yourself, which one doesn't seem to fit? It would be verse 21, a rule concerning uh, offering your children to Molech. How does that make its way into a section where God is specifically dealing with sexual morality? Um, I have two thoughts on that. One is that God is, remember he's discussing sexuality in the context of the way the world thinks about it. And the way the world... The, the world around them, they think like pagans when it comes to sexuality. They make up their own rules. And, and paganism is always defined by two fundamental perversions. First, it's a perversion of worship that leads to a perversion of sexuality. And so, sex and worship are very, very closely inter- intertwined. Romans chapter 1 makes the same point, that people gave themselves to worship false gods. God gave them to um, defile themselves in their bodies. Our bodies will tell the story on us, tell the truth. So, so, so worship and sexuality are very, very closely intertwined. But I think the second reason God puts us in the middle is who gets sacrificed when, uh, when a culture gives itself to sexual anarchy? The kids get sacrificed. On the altar of convenience, the altar of personal, a pursuit of personal pleasure, being my own, right, having 
autonomy and deciding, making up my own rules of, of who I will have relations with. The kids are the ones that get sacrificed over and over and over. And God notes it. The rule I would like to pay most attention to this morning is verse 22, simply because it is the raging issue of our day. Not many people are arguing for um, the sanctity of adultery or bestiality. Uh, but there is, of course, very, very strong pressure to sanctify homosexuality. Verse 22 is repeated in, in chapter 20, verse 13, with an attached penalty. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Uh, we've seen over the past years a ferocious attempt by people like Rachel Held Evans and Matthew Vines and many others to show that these texts no longer apply, that the Bible actually does not condone loving, committed homosexual relationships. Uh, there's, there's a variety of arguments raised uh, why this would be the case. The most prominent, uh, when it comes to the Old Testament particularly, is that the Old Testament's the Old Testament and who it doesn't apply any longer. So Matthew Vines will say there's no reason to think that these two verses from the old law in Leviticus would somehow have remained applicable to Christians even when other much more central parts of the law did not. So he says, just, I mean, look at Leviticus. You have all these laws, I mean, chapter after chapter about sacrifices and uncleanness, and, and that's much more central to the Old Testament law, and we just all admit that doesn't apply anymore. But, in, but then, you, you know, conservatives want to take these two verses these, that are clearly not the center and say, well, th- yeah, but those apply. Well, how does that work? Well, it's a fair question. Matthew Vines will also point out that um, in this, even in this, in this chapter, uh, we don't really worry about verse 19. You don't, you don't um, hear about the sin of couples uh, having intercourse uh, during a wife's uh, menstruation. So you're not going to make a big deal about 19, but you're going you're gonna to really get upset about 22. You're just picking and choosing, right? You're just, it's just, just according to whim. Well, how do you respond to that? I'd like to recommend to you Kevin DeYoung's excellent little book called What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? I think it's one of the clearest. Uh, Christopher Yuan also has a holy sexuality, which is very, very good. But Kevin spends a whole chapter on Leviticus 18 and 19, 18 and 20. And Kevin has six responses to uh, how do we answer that. I'm not going to take the time to go through all of them. I'll leave it to you. If you've not read it, I highly encourage you. Every Christian should, should be aware of what is the actual biblical arguments um, on, in this matter. So, two things. First of all, um, we don't adhere to the rules in Leviticus like the ceremonial laws because they've been fulfilled in Christ. So, in Acts chapter 15, the church says that's all, right? Jesus has fulfilled all the sacrificial system. We're not going to take these rules and, and make the Gentiles obey them. So, so, yes, the ceremonial system is clearly at the heart of the Old Testament law, and yes, it's been fulfilled in Christ. Um, and, and, uh, and therefore, it's no longer applicable right, to New Testament Christians in that way. Uh, that's why verse 19 does not rise to the same level. Verse 19 is about uncleanness caused by blood. We talked about that in chapter 15. It is a ritual uncleanness. It's not about sin. 
It's ritual uncleanness, an uncleanness related to the ceremonies of the sacrificial system. But now the, that the rituals are done away with, the rules related to the rituals also are done away with. So verse 19 is different than verse 22. Verse 19 is about a ceremonial practice. Verse 22 is about a moral practice, a moral rule. And the other thing we would, I would point to is that uh, the moral law of God is reaffirmed throughout the Bible. These aren't just two strange, uh, random texts in the Old Testament buried somewhere under all these laws about things we don't do anymore. This, is, this, this theme runs all the way through the Bible it, when it comes to sexual morality. The Bible has a lot to say about sexual morality. Adultery is always wrong in the Bible. Incest and homosexuality and bestiality are always wrong in the Bible, and they're, and they're addressed throughout, even in the New Testament. So the idea of incest, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, a man has his father's wife, and the people were shrugging in the church. And Paul says, you arrogant people, don't you care about the Lord your God? Don't you care about God's statutes, God's rules? You have the arrogance to call yourself Christians and shrug at God's commands? He's, he's, he's rebuking the church, not the man. The man needs to be removed. You cannot be a professing Christian, part of the, a functioning part of the body of Christ, and be violating in such a flagrant way, unrepentantly, God's commands. And, and it appears that this man, and the, both the man and the church, did repent from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. But it addresses it. Homosexuality, adultery, and every form of sexual immorality is addressed in 1 Corinthians 6. Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul, of course, not meaning that uh, those who struggle with those things are eternally lost. No, uh, Christians struggle with all of these sorts of things. And we, and we, and we fight and we confess and, and we repent and we turn and we plead for help and we, and we um, ask other people to help us. What Paul's talking about is are people who unrepentantly embrace these sins. All of them, or any of them, right? If you give yourself to that lifestyle, if you don't repent from that uh, lifestyle, well, don't be deceived. You will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's what he's saying. And so you see, there, there's no honest way to make the Bible say something other than what it says on this issue. I'd like to quote from a, a Luke Timothy Johnson. He is a senior fellow at the Center for the Study of Law and Religion at Emory University. So he's a bright guy. He knows what he's talking about. He's a pro-gay advocate. Here he's talking about the recent attempts, like by Vines and Evans, to reinterpret the Bible to prove that homosexuality is legitimate. This is what he says. The task demands intellectual honesty. I have little patience with efforts to make Scripture say something other than what it says through appeals to linguistic or cultural subtleties. The exegetical situation is straightforward. We know what the text says. But what are we to do with what the text says? 
I think it is I think it important to state clearly that we do in fact reject the straightforward commands of scripture and appeal instead to another authority when we declare that same-sex unions can be holy and good. And what exactly is that authority? We appeal explicitly to the weight of our own experience and the experience of thousands of others have witnessed to, which tells us that to claim our own sexual orientation is in fact to accept the way in which God has created us. By so doing, we explicitly reject as well the premises of the scriptural statements condemning homosexuality, namely that it is a vice freely chosen, a symptom of human corruption and disobedience to God's created order. As Kevin Young said in his sermon on this text, uh, that's an honest liberal. Uh, A man who says straight up what the facts are. This is what the text says. This is what we do. This is why we do it. We reject scripture. We appeal to our experience. The authority, friends, that is driving more and more Christians, professing Christians, to embrace homosexuality as a, as a um, legitimate lifestyle, it's not the authority of the text. It's not the authority of Scripture. It is the authority of experience. It's the authority of human autonomy. And that's the choice the church has before us. Will it be the world's statutes or will it be God's statutes? And the choice that we make will have consequences. Verse 24. Do not make yourself unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations um, I'm driving out before you have become unclean, and the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and so none of these abominations, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean as it vomited out the nation that was before you. I want you to notice from that, first of all, that that God's rules and statutes don't just apply to Israel. They apply to Egypt. They apply to the land of Canaan, the nations in the land of Canaan. Though they did not know God, they did not reverence God, they did not believe in God, but when they disobeyed God, they were spit out. The judgment of God came upon those nations because it's God's world. So this is not, these are not just sectarian rules. These are God's rules for all the world. And I think that's a very sobering thought for us as a nation. Friends, this text just helps us, calls us to acknowledge that we as a nation are ripe for judgment. We have committed ourselves as a nation to sexual deviancy. And let's just be honest about it. Any talk about making America a great again that doesn't involve repentance is a mockery of God's holiness. The only reason America was ever great in any sense is because of the kindness and the mercy of God and it was during a time when at least there was a basic general Judeo-Christian perspective of the world. You cannot, we cannot as a society... Spit in God's face. Set up ourselves against all that God, the living God, has ordered his world to to be like. We can't, particularly in terms of, of sexuality, we cannot throw it away and say we're going to be our own gods and we'll make our own rules, we'll make our own statutes and, and we'll sacrifice our children freely on the on the altar of sexual promiscuity 
and we'll embrace every sexual perversion. And it's almost like we're, we dare God to respond. Well, friends, He will. He will. And God will destroy, in a moment, all pride, all American pride, right? be it gay pride, be it conservative pride, anything that sets itself up against God, God will destroy. This nation has no future without repentance. I don't think that's going out on thin ice. Not if Leviticus 18 is true. Well, if that's what's true for the nation in general, what about for the church? This passage is communicating to Israel a very simple, very clear truth. If they begin to do what the Canaanites were doing, they would suffer what the Canaanites would suffer, which was the judgment of God. And God seals that promise again with his, his uh, own signature, I am the Lord your God. Do not be deceived. So what do we do with a text like this? Let me just close with a few things. First of all, this text calls for a commitment from the church to submit to God's statutes and rules. Uh, people in the church will argue and say that this is not a gospel issue. Uh, they'll say that Christians are free to agree to disagree over this. But you cannot say that with your Bible open. You see, this is a gospel issue in the sense that salvation requires faith and repentance for everyone. And salvation then requires a submission to God's word. Do not be deceived, Paul says. And he says it because people are precisely deceived on exactly that issue. I can follow Jesus and dismiss his word. Well, it's, it's just not possible. You've been, you've been deceived by the, the, by the evil one, by the devil. These are God's statutes, and these are God's rules, and, and the, the, the question simply is, will we submit to them? It's not something that Christians are free to disagree on. So God spoke to Israel in this way, and he speaks to us in the same way. I am the Lord your God. He is the God who has delivered us out of our Egyptian bondage to sin and death and hell. And he's clearly called us. We're to be a separate people. We're not to live the way the world lives. John will say friendship with the world is what? Enmity with God. You have to choose a side. Every day we have to choose a side. Whose statutes are going to reign today? Whose rule will I bow to today? God has called us out of death, out of darkness, into his light, and he has called us to live as a distinct people. We don't belong to the world. We belong to Jesus Christ. We don't belong to this world. We belong to a better country. We march to a different drummer. And the way we live out our sexuality, our sexual mores, will be a decisive mark in our distinctiveness, and our allegiance to God. That's what the text says. And so we just need to take this with all the seriousness that it deserves. And that means then also that for those who are involved in sexual sin today of any kind, God is calling you to repent. See, that's the beauty of the gospel. It speaks to a lost world and it speaks to sinful people. And it doesn't just pronounce judgment. It, it says this is a day of grace. And God invites people and calls people and commands people to repent. And so if you're, if you're in, in involved in sexual sin today, 
Well, the door of repentance has been opened to you. If you're trapped in, in, uh, in your battle with pornography and you just give in over and over and over, God calls you to repent. You're going to need help with that. You're going to need to reach out to people. If you're, if you're a, a man, there's a group like James Fellowship that can help you fight that battle. If you're a lady, there's a group like Stewards of Grace that will help you fight that battle. Ask and we'll direct you to the people that can, can help in that. If you're involved in an affair, you need to repent. If, you have, um, if, if you've just adopted the views of the world when it comes to homosexuality, repent. If you're battling with, with the same-sex uh, struggles yourself, well, the Scripture calls you, brother, to repent or sister to repent like, like we are all called to repent. The text calls us to repent. The text calls for courage. The world will not approve the church's stance on this. It is increasingly hostile to those who take a biblical stance. And so um, you will, I just believe we're going to start to pay the price for this. We're, you might lose your job. I don't think it's, I don't think it's being um, fear-mongering to say you might, you might go to prison. The world hates the biblical message about sexuality because it opposes their statute of human autonomy. It's going to call for courage. It's going to call for compassion. Uh, we've all sinned sexually and fallen short of the glory of God, so there's no room for boasting in this text, but we, it, it does call us to compassion for those who've been deceived and embrace what God hates. They're not the enemy. There are people who've been deceived, and, and compassion is the, an appropriate response as we pray, as we speak truth. One of the most loving things we can do is speak the truth of God. Do this and, and live. Turn and live. We, we need to show compassion for loved ones, for parents, family members uh, of those who've been so deceived as they wrestle with the, just the pain of this. This is, this, is, this is real life right here at Harvest Church. We need compassion for those who battle with unwanted same-sex desires or, or any uh, sexual sin that they resist, they hate, but, but there it is. If I could just say to a word, a word to, to you this morning, you're, you're not alone. You're not alone. Every Christian faces battles of one sort or another, and many of us face battles with sexual sin, sexual temptations. But the wonderful news of the gospel is no temptation has seized you what is common, but what is common to man. Every child of God battles with temptation in one area or another, and the gospel provides a refuge for all of us, a refuge of love and truth and grace that comes from Jesus, where we can confess the truth about what the, the part of us that we hate, the things that we hate, uh, that we abhor and yet struggle with, our flesh loves, and we can come to the gospel. It's the church, you see, is the one place in the whole world where sinners of every stripe can come, confess our sin, and find the full assurance of God's grace. Remember, after, Peter, after Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, do not be deceived, right? If you embrace these sins, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. But then he goes, and such were some of you. Such were some of you. But you have been washed. You've been sanctified. When we come to Jesus Christ, we are cleansed. Our temptations don't identify us. They don't define us. Uh, our washing in the blood of Jesus Christ defines us. 
And so, brothers and sisters, we have a gospel message, not just a law message. We do have a law. We have statutes and rules that God has laid down that are not debatable. But we have a gospel as well for people who violate the rules, for people who violate the boundaries. A gospel of a loving God who gave his own son, Jesus Christ, so that rebels and rule breakers like us could be forgiven and restored to God, reconciled forever. And so let's be serious about both. About the statutes and the rules and the wonder of the gospel for those who break them. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, you know us, you know our hearts, and you know the world in which we live, a world, Lord, that is increasingly setting itself against you and applauding precisely the things that you say are abominations. And Father, we are impacted by that world, and I pray that, you, that your, your word this morning would give clarity to our heart and mind. I pray, Lord, that you would give us the courage to hold to your statutes and your rules because you are our God and we are your people. And that we're, we are willing to be scoffed, ridiculed, mocked, berated, That we're willing, Lord, to suffer reproach because this is God's word and God's world. And God is worthy of worship and obedience. Father, I, I pray that you would be with uh, us as we, as we address this issue and the realities of people who've been deceived and people who wrestle sincerely with, with, with desires they, do not, they wish they did not have and Father, I pray we'd be gracious and humble. We'd be gentle and generous as we call people to Christ and to the truth. Thank you, Lord, for the stories that we hear over and over again of people who have found only destruction in, in going their own way, but have found life and freedom in, in submitting to your way. And I pray, Lord, that the church could be a place where, where um, there is hope for a confused world and there's, there's hope for rebels and people who've sinned sexually the hope of jesus christ and father uh, we just pray that you would allow us to be a ministering uh, body here in in west michigan to, to the community right here around us and and to the congregation right here in front of us that we would we would help each other understand the rule obey the statute and delight in the gospel i pray in jesus name amen